If you prepare for the ministry of God's Word, please remember that there are two texts that we'll be looking at today. One is the backdrop of the other. So please turn first to Genesis chapter 11. As you're turning there, please stand. We reminded elsewhere in Scripture that the grass outside will wither and beautiful flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. And so as God's people, we strive to hear it and to heed it faithfully together. This is the word of God from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Please turn now to the book of Acts, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Dear Holy Spirit, it is with joy and humility that we now stand in your presence. Your word has been read, and we believe it is life-giving. By it, you open the eyes of the blind. We pray that you would do that not only in our hearts, but that you would help us together as the people of God to glorify and enjoy the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through the reading and the preaching of your own word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to know that I am very thankful to be here this morning, and I am grateful that you are here. 
whether you're here as a first-time visitor or here as a friend of a friend or even a familiar face, not only are you most welcome here today, uh, you are here because God brought you here. In many ways, this is what is often referred to as a divine appointment. And we're going to be talking today about the power of God. So I'm going to begin with a question even to our smaller kids, covenant kids. What is the most powerful force in all the world? Well, when I was a kid, my answer would have been my dad. He seemed to me to be the most powerful force in all the world. He was fierce and fearless, strong, chiseled, a man that was great with guns and knives. He almost seemed to be like a hundred feet tall. And I can remember how stirring and provocative it was to me. Uh, one summer day uh, in mid-June in North Carolina, my dad would often go out jogging with two black plastic bags over himself in the heat of summer. And on one day, he was brought home in the back of a Jeep. He had passed out and collapsed on the side of the road. There, the strongest man in the world lay helpless. In another direction, you might think of different forms of power that are impressive to us, like the wind and the many ways in which the wind can display incredible power. Living in Florida for almost 21 years, Heather and I have enjoyed the company of many hurricanes, some of them reaching even up to Category 3. And if you've ever gone through something like a Category 3 hurricane, uh, it, it is mind-blowing. And not only the destruction and devastation that a hurricane can bring with its great wind, but even a tornado, which I can remember one time going through a town nearby and literally leveling a shopping center uh, down to the concrete, which even parts of that were pulled up out of the ground. But I want to ask again the question, what is the most powerful thing, powerful force in all the world? It's not man. It's not the wind. It's the Holy Spirit. And it's to the Holy Spirit that we give our attention today. Let's think about the coming of the Holy Spirit. In many ways, the first point in our sermon outline is reflecting on the question, when did the Holy Spirit come? And it's actually a very important question. It is the focal point of verse 1. It's how the section in chapter begins. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Our text begins, in many ways, the ministry, the New Testament ministry, of the Holy Spirit begins on the day of Pentecost. This is fitting for all kinds of reason. The very word Pentecost uh, comes from a word meaning 50. It is the first day of the week in the sense of being the 50th day after the Jewish Sabbath. It has a variety of nicknames that play into what we are to understand. One of its names is called the Feast of Weeks because being this 50th day, it is seven times seven weeks. And so they called it a feast of weeks, or if you will, a feast of sevens, a feast of Sabbath, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths, but it's the day after the Sabbath on the first day of the week. It is also the third major feast in Israel, which stands alongside the Passover, which comes before it, and the Feast of Booths that comes after it. One more of its nicknames, if you're following along with me, is the Feast of Harvest, because Pentecost was signaled that time of the year when Israel would begin to gather in all the fruit, all the blessing, all the harvest, be a great name for a church, uh, that God was pleased to grant to his people. Only here, in Acts chapter 2, the harvest is not physical, it is spiritual. The feast 
is not spiritual, it is physical. And in many ways, that is the whole point. This is the work of the Spirit uh, that is used, these physical things, as a backdrop or a stage to display the mighty work of God. A spiritual harvest is about to begin. A great ingathering of souls is about to take place. But not only is the when of the Holy Spirit's coming significant, so also is the how. Uh, Chapter 2 of the book of Acts is a magnificent and mind-bending chapter in many ways. If you look at verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. You would never forget such an event like this. It's a remarkable event. The word for wind uh, in Greek could also be at times translated spirit or breath. And, and that flexibility is actually quite important because the coming of the spirit with this attending great sound of a rushing wind is intentional. It's designed to take our minds back to the Old Testament and to think a little bit more about not simply wind, but the spirit or the breath of God. This is how the Bible begins. The Spirit of God hovering over creation. As at the very moment when God first begins to create, He begins to infuse creation, not only with His presence, but in a certain, properly understood sense, a reflection of Himself. Some theologians even describe the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, almost as though there is God looking into something like a pool of water, infusing creation with a reflection of himself. And so here, the Spirit of God that was involved in the original work of creation, filling it with the glory and reflection of God, is now involved in the work of new creation, a new day, a new coming of the Spirit, when an even better reflection of the glory and the power of God will be demonstrated. And if you move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, that wind, spirit, breath language continues to be important. One of the strangest things to me that happens in the Bible is the creation of man. Have you ever noticed that when God creates man, as man is first created, the moment he is created, he is not breathing. He is like a cadaver. And then it says, the Spirit of God breathed into man, and man becomes a nephish hayah, a living being. But for a moment, imagine this. The breath of God in the chest of man. God breathed into man. This is where CPR comes from. God was the first to do it. And he breathes the Spirit. He breathes life into man, and man becomes a living being capable, not simply of reflecting God. Creation did that in a limited sense. Man now does it in an enhanced sense, but with the breath of God in his chest, he can begin to fellowship with the living God, the Spirit that gives life. What began at creation is now coming to fruition. This is what we are to see in Acts chapter 2. A new creation is taking place. Just as Jesus would say, or did say to Nicodemus, the wind or the spirit blows wherever it wishes and you do not see it, yet you see its work. You see the fruit of its work. This is intimately connected, as Jesus points out, to the new birth. The point really isn't when. The point is new birth, new creation, recreation, God making all things new. The power that God began to display at creation furthered at this moment of new creation. When the Holy Spirit comes, 
Not simply to cause things that do not exist to be, but to cause things that do exist and are bound in sin to team with spiritual life. This is the beginning of the church. This is God bringing his church into existence by the power of his life-giving Holy Spirit that begins, we are told, with a great wind, a blowing wind. But then there's also fire. It begins to sound like a great 70s band, Earth, Wind, and you know who I'm talking about. Those of you that are chronologically enhanced like some of us. But the fire also is not a wasted detail of the text by any means. Verse 3 describes, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. All of these things are symbolic, and I hope we're not getting lost in the details, but you do have to see the symbolism of what is happening. That's, in many ways, the point. Uh, the light was symbolic of several things. Uh, you might see the fire was symbolic of light and glory and warmth. All things are very significant to the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see light many ways and many times as a sign and emblem of God's presence among his people. When the Exodus began, it is described this way, those who sat in darkness would see a great light. The light of God's presence and salvation is what began the Exodus, but it's also what carried it through. It's the light of God, if you will, that led them out of Egypt when they did not know the way that they should go. It was the light of God that led them through the sea when they were backed up as the Egyptians chased them from behind. It was the light of God that led them through the wilderness when they became that wandering people of God before they entered the land. And it was the light of God's presence that led them into the land finally. And then where did that light rest? But not simply in the tabernacle, but climactically in the temple. The light of God's presence in the midst of his people. But not only is the fire symbolic of light, it's also symbolic of glory. The glory of God. To say it differently, the consuming presence of God. Holiness. A light so bright, you can't look at it. I have friends who were dumb enough to look up in the sky <clears throat> through enhanced lenses when we had that eclipse not long ago. And you know, it can do great danger to one's eyes. How much more dangerous are those that would look into the light of God's glorious presence, unfiltered, The glory of God in many ways is the great theme of the entire Bible. It was the purpose of the Exodus, not simply to save a people, but to bring glory and honor to God through the salvation of his people. But when you think about it, the glory of God, which was that blessed presence among the people of God, is also that which constantly threatened them. For on the one hand, as you can see at the base of Mount Sinai, there Israel has a view of the glory of God, but only from a great distance The hope of Israel was also its greatest threat. They were in the presence of God, and that was a beautiful thing. And they were in the presence of God, and that was a dangerous and threatening thing. So this fire is symbolic, not simply of light, but even of the glory of God. And then thirdly, warmth. What do you get when you stand beside a fire? You get warm. What do you get if you touch a fire? You get burnt. Fire produces heat. Heat warms the body physically. But again, the point of the fire coming in Acts 2 was not to warm people up physically, but rather that is the Spirit of God that warms the heart and the soul of the believer. 
It's as Jesus said, the difference between one who is cold, one who is lukewarm, and one who is hot in the sight of God, one whose heart is warmed by the fire of God. And what is it that actually warms the hearts of God's people, if not the ministry of God's Spirit? So on this day in Acts chapter 2, in this house, when not only a mighty rushing wind, but these divided tongues of fire come dashing through this house, no one was cold. No one was spiritually cold. This crowd of the disciples were on fire. Why? If you take a step or two back and you think about the wind, you think about the light, you think about all the things that are now coming upon the people of God, the disciples that are gathered here in Acts chapter 2. It's because in a certain sense, beloved, all these things for a moment were taken away from the Son of God. To say it differently, all that is given to the church at the moment of the cross, these things were taken away from the Son. These things in a measure were withdrawn from him, but they come back to him by way of his resurrection. When Jesus is raised and ascends up into heaven, uh, once again, it is not with the loud roar of Mount Sinai where again that wind was manifest, but here a whisking wind that takes him up into heaven itself in the presence of his disciples. And not simply the wind, but the light. Think again about the day that Jesus was crucified. The light had turned to darkness. And there is a reason why. Because the light of God's presence was being withdrawn. Judgment and darkness was falling, not simply upon the world, but upon the Son of God at Mount Calvary. But he who endured the great darkness because of the resurrection would inherit eternal light as the exalted Son of God who is now and forevermore the light of the world. And what about warmth? We're not talking about the warmth of being beside a fire, but rather the warmth that the son knew beside his father. The truly warming and consoling presence of the father in heaven. If light was taken away from the son at the cross, how much more the warmth of his father's presence. When he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that the answer is that in his being forsaken, we've been adopted and drawn near. The warmth of the Father's presence was taken away from Jesus at the cross, is now exchanged for his eternal privilege of sitting where? At the right hand of the presence of his Father. And beloved, Jesus is warm there. Warmed, if you will, consoled, if you will, by the presence of of his father, and that warmth, this is the point he shares with you. He shares with his people, you, who are now adopted sons and daughters, granted what, what scripture will elsewhere call the spirit of adoption that comes with this wonderful promise because Jesus was forsaken. The Lord says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What Pentecost is doing, beloved, is applying the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection afresh to the people of God. By the power of the Spirit, the church is being formed. And that brings us to our second point, to say a little bit more about the recipients of the Holy Spirit. Just for a little bit, let's think about who was there that day. Who who was the audience? 
the recipients. I'm going to come back in a little while to the tongues thing. I know it's what you're really just wanting me to talk about, and you feel like you're just being patient to hear what I'm going to say about that, but hold on. It's not the center of the text by any means. And in fact, if you look for a moment uh, at verses 7 through 11, uh, we have this rather unusual list of people who are amazed and astonished, and they're perplexed because they're hearing these Galileans speak, each of them, in their own language. And then the text gives us the details, this list of names, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, belonged to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Do you know where all those places are on a map? You probably don't. And that's okay. But what we're supposed to understand about this is actually very important. This is what we would call a table of nations. It's in a certain sense like saying representatives of the known world are there. And it's for this purpose, beloved, that we read from Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is the very meaningful backdrop of Acts chapter 2. Why? Because there in Genesis 11, God comes down from heaven and he put a curse, a particular kind of curse, upon mankind. They were building a stairway to heaven, literally. This tower that would climb up into the heavens. And they had an unambiguous purpose. They stated themselves for which they are building this stairway to heaven. And it was to glorify and enjoy themselves. Not God. A man-made ladder to heaven, which is a false gospel. And the worst possible idolatrous goal to glorify and enjoy themselves. And so what did God do? God said no. This will not be. He came down and judged them. He came down and cursed them. By his spirit, we are told, he confused them. And it's at this point in history, in human history, that varied languages come into existence and are dispersed around the world. This is literally the beginning of communication breakdown. Lost in translation began in Genesis chapter 11. Nations separated from nations. A very dark day. A literally divisive day. In the next chapter, for the first time, you meet a Jew who began as a Gentile. This is the beginning of that great Jew-Gentile distinction, which very obviously and even painfully exists down to this very day. In many ways, the sin of Babel and the curse of Babel becomes the source of war between nation and nation, all seeking the glory of man. But what we see in Acts is the reversal of Babel. What you see in Acts is God taking the curse and turning it, if you will, upside down, reversing the curse and bestowing blessing upon his people. And when we say his people, this is the first time in such a punctuated, loud, unambiguous way that when we say the idea of his people, you're not referring narrowly to the Jews. His people, here represented in Acts chapter 2, the very first fruit of the Feast of Weeks, are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue in the known world at that time, all coming and hearing in their own language, in their own tongue, 
that name which is above all names, gathered not to glorify and enjoy man, but glorify and enjoy God. And as one commentator puts it, I think very helpfully, in Acts chapter 2, you find a beautiful end to what truly divides race from race. In other words, the only thing that actually might end racism, which is the gospel. Any false notion of ethnic superiority and self-exaltation all put down as the name of Jesus is lifted up. This is the powerful work of God's Spirit. When the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, men from all over the known world hearing not simply uh, the great things of God to which we'll return, but rural Galileans speaking in languages they've never known or studied. Now I want to say something about the tongues. What were these, or what were they not? Well, I'll tell you what they were not first. What they were not is an unknown language, or incoherent gibberish. Rather, these rural Galileans, all of a sudden, having never studied, having not gone to college and majored in foreign language and diplomacy or... uh, accessed online Rosetta Stone, but now all of a sudden speaking, if you will, this is just illustrative, French, Italian, and Spanish, men that had all their life only known Hebrew or Aramaic, and now all of a sudden they know the languages of the known world. And not only is this speaking a clear known language, whatever these tongues were, they were a known language. Uh, it was not an unknown language or incoherent gibberish But uh, even more, please notice, this is a temporary phenomenon. This is a moment in time. It does not continue throughout the entirety of the New Testament, and it doesn't even continue throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. For there are only a select number of disciples upon whom uh, this particular miracle falls. It does not happen to all disciples without distinction. You don't see it uh, riding headlong into all the books of the New Testament. The tongues were as unique, be with me here, as the fire itself was visible and the sound of the rushing wind. Three things came together that day. The sound of rushing wind, a visible form of fire, and these tongues. Where you had the one, you had the three, and arguably it would remain that way. So let me say this a little differently. Pentecost, on a calendar if you will, comes every year. But the phenomena that happened in Acts chapter 2 on this day happened at one day, one time, one Pentecost in New Testament history, and that's it. It doesn't happen the next Pentecost, and it doesn't become a norm in any church anywhere in the New Testament or even in the book of Acts. But there is one thing that does repeatedly happen that relates to this, and you might have thought that I missed it. It's when the Spirit came on that day of Pentecost. It was notably, and I'm going to make a big deal out of this, the first day of the week. What is the first day of the week? It's today. The Sabbath of Sabbaths. The Feast of Feasts. The Harvest of Firstfruits. In other words, don't, don't miss what clearly does become a New Testament Pattern and paradigm. The church was gathered there together on that first day of the week, not the Jewish Sabbath, 
but the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, what we call Sunday. And there's a great reason why. This is the resurrection day that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the day that God's spirit is poured out upon his people. This is the day that the first fruits of the church are gathered in and it becomes the day followed week after week after week that God continues the feast and the gathering. It is the great day of the Lord, grown out of the soil of the Old Testament, now reaching and bearing first fruits in the soil of the new. On this resurrection day, what does our God do and continue to do to the very end of the age? It's a beautiful thing. It's happening here. It's happening worldwide. What does he continue to do? But to pour out his spirit as the church is gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is a great day. This is the day that the church, beloved, is separated from the self-exalting, perishing world, if you will, from the Babel all around us and gathered together that we might come from very many different backgrounds, but we gather together around one name with one purpose, which is to glorify and enjoy God, not ourselves. That's why scripture will say elsewhere, this is the day that the Lord has made Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So we long not for tongues. It would have been really helpful for me at an academic point in my life to all of a sudden have the ability to speak in a known language that I'd never studied. And now it would not help me at all. To long for tongues is to miss the point of Acts chapter 2. To focus on the wind, the fire, and the sound is to miss the point entirely. They were all there to exalt the name of Jesus in a very punctuated way. And not only that, what God continues to do and to promise to do is to gather his people, not by the sound of wind, not by loud displays or light or tongues, but to gather by word, sacrament, and prayer. Let me say it differently and finally. We should long not for the irregular ministry of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, but for the ordinary means of grace that God promises to give unambiguously week after week after week on this day, the resurrection day, when Jesus, Jesus' triumph is celebrated and the gathering, the great ingathering of the nations, continues by word, sacrament, and prayer. So finally, I want to say a little bit about the message. What did they hear? This is probably quite important. We're told at the end of our section that what they were hearing at the end of verse 11 in their own tongues was the mighty works of God. This is beautiful language. It is powerful language. The language of power runs throughout the text from beginning to end. We could note that what they did not hear was something about themselves. What they did not hear is who they should marry, where they should work, or where they should live. You wonder why I'm bringing it up. It's because that there are embodiments of this in certain charismatic movements where people literally uh, practice waiting upon the Holy Spirit. And what that means is they gather together. This is like the Quakers of old. And they just sit there and wait for the Holy Spirit to tell them precisely what to do. And someone in the crowd will eventually sit up and say, the Holy Spirit has told me exactly what we are to do. And then they perform what they refer to as instant obedience. And they will go down and run around and try to fulfill what they feel like is the Holy Spirit's immediate revelation for their lives. And then they all, in a short period afterwards, go look for counselors. Because that's not how the Spirit works. 
That is not how the Spirit works. It's not how the Spirit worked here. On this day in Acts, 20, Acts 2, when the Spirit came in power, what they heard, even in their own known languages from these rural Galileans, was what God had done in history. The mighty acts of God in history. That's what they heard. Wasn't the God micromanaging their checking account? It was what God had done redemptively in history on behalf of his people. The accent here surely, surely falls upon the gospel itself. That the Father sent the Son, and the Son obediently came and did all the Father's will. And though he died, he was raised by the power of the Spirit of God, that Jesus had come with a particular purpose of reversing the curse or the curses, if you will, that were placed upon the world, not just Babel, but the curse that came at creation. When the first Adam failed to do all that he was intended to do, when he walked away from the light and sat in darkness, when the Spirit of God chased him away from the presence of God, and all that awaited him was rather than the glory of God, the judgment of God, but Jesus came, and those curses have now been reversed. He is the great curse reverser. Jesus is the one who has done and accomplished the mighty acts of God. Not just his countless, endless, many miracles. But think of the great miracle, the mighty act of God, that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God. That is a mighty act of God. Which one of us can do it? The answer is none. And then he died sacrificially in our place, a ransom to satisfy the wages of our sin. Again, a mighty act of God. And then climactically on this day of the week, he was raised up into heaven and finally ascended into heaven and bestows upon his church the power of the Holy Spirit. And that phrase, the church, signals that Jesus has begun to do something that he will not cease to do, will not give up doing until it has finally been climactically accomplished. And what is that great act of God that Jesus continues to do against the backdrop of the mighty acts of God that he already did? It's his promise to build his church. The great act remaining in history, if you will, beloved, is the ingathering of you. The gathering of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, filling empty seats, filling empty hearts, gathering together a people for himself. That is the great act of God that he is continuing to do. Jesus is building his church and continued to the very end when all things are accomplished. And what you see here in this moment, in many ways, is the fount from which the rest of the book of Acts flows. That is to say, the gospel message they hear here in Acts chapter 2 is the gospel message they go and proclaim in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, through the rest of the book. It's what the church is saying to the end of the age, not simply the book of Acts. How do you know? Read the book. Read the sermons of Peter. Read the sermons of Stephen. Read the sermons of Paul. What do they talk about? The mighty acts of God. How the gospel itself is the fruition of all God had begun to do in the Old Testament. And even the great acts of the Old Testament were like road signs, stages set for the Son of God to come and perform. All the stories of the Old, of the Old Testament blend into the greatest story ever told of the Son of Man coming in history to fulfill 
all things. And see how their lives are changed by it as we wind down the sermon. How their lives are forever changed by the coming and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's something beautiful here. There's a great optimistic promise here. Their lives are forever changed by this day. These same disciples, if you go back to like, you know, just previous days and weeks in their life, they're scared, they're cowardly, they're hiding, they're discouraged, they're undone. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And they become the opposite of all those things. They become relentless, they become focused, they become determined, their life is filled with purpose, their minds become singular, and they will not rest until they rest in the grave, proclaiming the mighty acts of God. What is the implication of this? Well, I want to make one big point by way of application is this. You don't have to be charismatic or Pentecostal to have a high view of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in fact, it's at the very heart of what it means to be reformed. Arguably, the most beautiful, well-developed theology of the Holy Spirit is embodied in the Reformed faith in the Reformed confessions. John Calvin's nickname, you know what it was? You know what his nickname was? The theologian of the Holy Spirit. Because he was always talking about the Holy Spirit. Because he was personally and pastorally enamored with the Holy Spirit. Because his theology and his ministry was driven by a conviction that not only was the Holy Spirit at work, but that the Holy Spirit was doing a great work carrying out the mighty acts of God. And what did this translate into? John Calvin, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. You know what he did with his life? He trained and sent hundreds of missionaries around the world. He not only preached and pastored a local church. I don't know how he did it. He preached like five times a week. I really didn't want you to know that. But on top of that, he literally trained in a seminary and raised up and sent out hundreds upon hundreds. That's not exaggeration. Hundreds upon hundreds of missionaries, some that would serve locally there in Geneva, others that would go to other parts of France and Europe, some places where the gospel is being warmly received, like Holland and Scotland and other places where it's being hotly opposed, sending people to faraway lands across the ocean, many of whom would never come back, never be seen, some even never heard from again. That's a great theology of the Holy Spirit. That God is so big, that God is so sovereign, he's continuing to apply the work of Jesus raised from the dead to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And until the end of the age, this is why the church is here. To glorify and enjoy God on that day of days, week after week, and yet to be busy about the great commission of God that in some ways was pointed to in Matthew, but now is really taken off. That's why the book of Acts is so exciting. In many ways, it's the biography of the Holy Spirit at work in and through the church of Christ. Next month, give a little plug here for what we're going to do. Next month, we're going to give our attention. It's already in your bulletins, these little inserts, but to the way that we carry out the work of the Great Commission as a church. 
We do it locally, as our church does evangelism and discipleship, what we call Christian education. We do it regionally through the work of church planting. And why do we plant churches? So that people will be evangelized and raised up as kingdom disciples. And globally, and what do we mean by that? Uh, that we will send missionaries around the world to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Some of those languages are already known. Some where people have to go somewhere and study those languages that they might go there and speak in tongues the hard way, the normal way. And why would we be busy about that, excited about that? Because that's what the Spirit is up to. That is the work of the Spirit, the mighty work of God that He continues in and through His church. It's all in exactly where I begin and ask this final question. What is the most powerful force, the most powerful thing, the most powerful person in all of this world? It is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. Let's pray. Our resurrecting God, our life-changing God, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would increase our faith, our confidence and expectation of the things that you will do, not only in and through our church, but particularly through us. We recognize, O oh Lord, that the power of the Spirit is often best displayed upon the stage of our own weakness. And Lord, we know and confess how weak we are. We are weak in and of ourselves. We feel weak at times within our families. We feel weak at times within our church. We often judge as the world judges, which is according to sight. We walk by sight and not by faith. And too often, therefore, we stumble in the darkness. And so we ask that you help us to remember that Jesus is the light of the world. That there is indeed a mighty sound rushing through this world, and it is the preaching of your own gospel. And that there is power in the gospel. For even the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. For it is the power of God unto salvation. For by it, not only are Jews, but even Gentiles being converted in and through the ministry of your church. And so Lord, I pray for all those who are here today by divine appointment, that we would be excited, invigorated by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be caught up in the mission of the Spirit, which is to gather people from every nation, tribe, and tongue into the arms of the church, and help us to remember that in many ways the means is the end. If the end is to gather together a church, the means that you've appointed for that gathering is the church as well. So help us to find our part in it and to be eagerly excited about it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.